0: Verse 6 on his shoulder will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On December 24, 1914, British troops occupied a trench in Belgium. Cold, miserable, fearing for their lives, and disgruntled with a war that had dragged on now into the holidays, morale amongst the troops could not have sunk lower. One of these troops was a British machine gunner named Bruce Barne's father who describes the misery. Here I was in this horrible clay cavity miles and miles from home. Cold, wet through, and covered with mud, there didn't seem to be the slightest chance of leaving, except in an ambulance. It was amidst this misery that Barne's father heard singing from the German troops in their trench across the battlefield. The Germans were singing Christmas carols, and several British troops joined in the song. Barron's father writes that, Suddenly we heard a confused shouting from the other side. We all stopped to listen. The shout came again. The voice was from an enemy soldier, speaking in English with a strong German accent. He was saying, Come over here. One of the British sergeants answered, You come halfway, I come halfway. What happened next became known as the Christmas Truce. Soldiers from both trenches met in the no man's land on the battlefield. They began exchanging handshakes, friendly words, cigarettes, wine, and sang Christmas songs. A Christmas celebration had broken out in the middle of the battlefield. The troops were now singing side by side with men whom, hours earlier, they were trying to kill. Barron's father would go on to become a successful cartoonist, and here is his drawing of the spontaneous Christmas celebration on the battlefield that day. The Christmas truce broke out all across the Western Front, German Lieutenant Kurt Zemish writes about a pickup game of soccer. Eventually, the English brought a soccer ball from their trenches, and pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus, Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. Today, at the National Memorial Arboretum in England, this statue of a soccer ball memorializes the time when a miraculous peace broke out amidst the violence. i just going to pause for a second. The kids can be dismissed to the back for their ornament projects. I forgot about that. So if you're a child that wants to do an ornament project, you're welcome to head to the back right now. So I forgot to, to dismiss you. We're in week three of a series called Name Above All Names where we're looking at the names of Jesus. And to help us remember the names of Jesus, we've been asking, what do you do to runny noses, baby's bottoms, stains on the countertop what do you do with dirty windows what do you do you yes you wipe them very good does anyone remember what the w stood for wonderful. wonderful counselor very good how about the i emmanuel here's a bonus question what does emmanuel mean god with us Woohoo! and today we're looking at the p which is prince of peace Jesus is named by Isaiah as the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9-6. Isaiah prophesies about the coming king, and Isaiah says the coming king will be called the Prince of Peace. Now what's interesting is that the prophecy about the Prince of Peace stands in contrast to the world at large, both at the time that the prophecy was made and at the time that the prophecy was fulfilled. Prince of Peace stands in contrast to the world when Isaiah makes the prophecy in the 730s BC. King Ahaz is on the throne of the nation of Judah, and there is this nation to be feared that's just conquering everybody, and that nation is the nation of Assyria. And so ruthless and strong is the nation of Assyria that the northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen and ceased, ceases to exist. It's fallen to the Assyrian army. And now King Ahaz in Judah is feeling the pressure of this Assyrian army, and he's beginning to pay tribute to the Assyrians to keep them off his back, just kind of buy them off for a time to leave Judah alone. And the Assyrians were not only militarily strong, but they were ruthless. They were brutal. And they conquered not just through military might, but they waged a war of terror. People were extremely afraid of the Assyrians because of their brutality. And just for an example, here's an Assyrian relief which shows Assyrian soldiers having impaled captives and they would set up those sticks out in front of cities as if to say, if you mess with the Assyrian empire, this same thing is going to happen to you. And Impaling is obviously a very gruesome and brutal form of death because it takes a long time to die. Terror to say, you mess with us, this happens to you. Here's another Assyrian relief that shows two soldiers forcing a captive to grind the bones of his family members. So they were just a brutal, ruthless army. And so at the time that Isaiah says the king will be called the prince of peace, there was war, there was violence, there was brutality, there was terror all around them, largely brought on by this Assyrian army. So how can we fathom a prince of peace when there's so much violence around us the prophecy stands in contrast to the world when the prophecy was made and it stands in contrast to the world when the prophecy was fulfilled in three to five bc when jesus was born we often get excited about and think a lot about the the silent night that jesus was born in right peace calm jesus meek and mild right but we forget that there was another war of terror going on at the time that Jesus was born. Because as the Magi follow the star, they're led to King Herod, who is the governor of Judea at that time, a Roman official, who hears about this prophecy for a Messiah and feels threatened. His rule and reign is threatened. And so look at what King Herod does when he feels that his his rule is threatened by this coming Messiah. Look at Matthew 2.16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the stars first experience or his first appearance so we see king herod carrying out a genocide of hebrew boys it's a lot like exodus isn't it that he carries out a genocide of hebrew boys because he feels like his rule and reign is threatened and so this prophecy for a prince of peace is both made in a violent time and fulfilled In a violent time and the world has been a violent time ever since Cain killed Abel the pattern of violence began with Cain killing Abel it continued in the 730s BC with King Ahaz and the prophecy of Isaiah it continued into Jesus's birth and the fulfillment of the prophecy and it still continues today there's I don't like rap I really don't for the most part I really don't like rap but there's a song called The System by this rapper, Tom McDonald, and I kind of like it. And there's a line, a few lines that I want to play for you from this song that just speaks to this system of violence that we're perpetually in. Let's, let's listen. Welcome to the system, everyone's a victim. Doesn't matter if you're black or white, it hate you all. Parents are the system, violence is a symptom. Fighting for what's right, but somehow everyone is wrong welcome to the world everybody i'm gonna paint you black and white i'm gonna make you hate each other so that everyone will fight and i'm gonna give you borders they're imaginary lines if you cross them go to war and win when everybody dies (laughs) he's just spinning it right but i love his line welcome to the system violence is a symptom i'm like yeah violence has been a symptom ever since cain killed abel violence has been going on ever since sin was brought into the world but because of the Prince of Peace that we have in Jesus. There is a unique peace that he brings. The Prince of Peace brings on a unique peace in this world of violence because the peace that the Prince of Peace brings is total, it's eternal, and it's paradoxical. The peace that the Prince of Peace brings into this system of violence is unique because his peace is total, his peace is eternal, and his peace is paradoxical. First of all, the peace that the Prince of Peace brings is total. The name Prince of Peace in Hebrew is Sar Shalom. And we often think of peace as an as a, as a absence of violence or a lack of violence. But Shalom in the Hebrew is more than just a, an absence of violence. It's everything as it ought to be. Shalom is bigger than just, it's not violent here. Shalom is, this is how it should be. This is how God intended it. This is how God wants it to be. It doesn't get any better than this. That's shalom in the Hebrew. And we look forward to shalom in the new heavens and the new earth. The peace that the Prince of Peace brings is total because the peace that the Prince of Peace brings extends all the way to creation. Because someday when the Prince of Peace returns, God will create the new heavens and the new earth and will be in shalom once again. Everything will be as it ought to be. God created shalom when he created this earth. We brought violence into the world when we sinned. And God will recreate this earth as it ought to be once again. He will bring shalom once again and everything will be as it should be. Look at Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 8, which gives us a window into new creation, into this shalom that the Lord will once again bring. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of a deadly snakes without harm. In shalom, everything will be as it ought to be. And the cow is going to lie down with a bear. Bears are pretty dangerous. I was talking with uh, Morgan's cousin. She had a Thanksgiving gathering with some family that was out of town, and I was talking with her cousin who likes to hike, and he's an outdoorsman, and somehow we got onto the subject of bears, and he said, all right, if it's a black bear, you want to get big and fight back. So agitate, make noise, get big, fight back. All right, he said, but if it's a grizzly bear, play dead and hope it doesn't mess with you. I'm like, that's not a very good strategy. He said, yeah. You don't want to be in that situation. Better to not be in that situation. I said, yeah, because Leonardo DiCaprio played dead, and the bear still did a number on him in that movie. <laughs> right?" But yeah, so bears are dangerous. I mean, black bear is good. Like, get big, be, you know, agitate. Uh, but grizzly bears, boy, you're in big trouble if you meet a grizzly bear. But the whole point behind this is someday the calf will lie down with the bear. Someday the bear won't be a problem for us. Someday we'll be at peace with the bear, and we won't have to worry about being mauled by the bear because of the prince of peace's peace that he brings in the shalom that God will create. As part of this thanksgiving gathering, you know, some of Morgan's relatives are from Illinois, so they got a hotel and we were asking them, "How is your hotel?" And they said, "Well, the hotel's pretty good, but the beds are pretty bad." And I said, I said, "You know, when did that become a thing?" I mean, I remember as a kid, I could sleep anywhere. It's like you give me somewhere to lie down and I could sleep it's a bed is a bed and you go to bed and you'd sleep now as an adult you get into a hotel and you're like you feel every nook and cranny in the bed every mountain every hole and you're kind of like okay over here nope 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 too much too valley okay all right over here nope too high. i mean it's just and hopefully your body accommodates that so that you can sleep and i'm like how is this a thing i'm only 37 years old how is this a thing already and like this is your body deteriorating already. Welcome to, th- I mean, wow, my body's deteriorated this bad. I just had a wedding last night. And it got to be like 8 o'clock, and I'm at the reception, and I'm like, oh, how much longer does this thing go? I'm tired. It's like, when did my body deteriorate so much? It gets worse. I know, I know, I'm worried. I'm worried. Lord Jesus, take me soon, you know. Just bypass all that. Get me to the resurrected body. But we look forward to that. Someday, the Prince of Peace will bring a shalom that extends to creation. That's how total his peace is, is that it extends to creation. It extends to creation, and it extends to our relationship with others, to our interpersonal relationships. Now, if you haven't already incurred a wound so deep from someone else in here, then at some point in your life, you will. All of us, or if you haven't already, will at some point incur a wound that is so deep from somebody that it takes over your mind, that in the morning you wake up and immediately you begin to think about the pain, that you get through a day and you already dread rising to the next day because you think, I made it through this day, but barely, how can I face the next day and all the pain that next, the next day is sure to bring? And you wonder, how am I ever going to get over this? This takes so much energy, sorting through it in my mind, healing from it. Will I ever heal? Because as soon as I think about this person, it's like I can think of nothing else. And I start to feel the emotions well up within me, and I can't. I tell myself, just put that to bed. Just put that in a box. And no matter how much I try, I can't just put that away. This pain is so deep. I'm sure that all of us, at some, if we haven't already, will incur a wound that is so deep that it constantly nags at us. They say that the only things assured in life are death and taxes. I would add conflict to that, interpersonal conflict. It's going to happen. But for those of us that have incurred those deep, deep wounds, from someone look at what Isaiah promises in 9 verses 4 to 5 for you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders you will break the oppressor's rod hallelujah just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian the boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood stained by war will all be burned they will be fuel for the fire so the prince of peace breaks the yoke of slavery He lifts the heavy burden. He breaks the oppressor's rod. Someday, that wounding will be no longer. And someday, that wounding will no longer happen because that person who has wounded you will no longer wound. And you won't wound others as well because the rod of oppression will be broken. So someday we look forward to the Prince of Peace's peace that assures us that we will no longer wound and we will no longer incur wounds from others. Now you might say, well that's all well and good for the future and I can certainly look forward to that and I believe that that will happen, but I'm still hurting now. And I still have a wounder in my life right now. And I'm still incurring wounds right now. What do I do? with these wounds and this wounder right now. Well, I found an interesting strategy this week. Jesus gives it to us. I read this story this week. It was one of my Advent readings in Luke 3, where he heals this woman who was paralyzed for 18 years, and he does so on the Sabbath. And because he does so on the Sabbath, the religious leaders are taking him to task for that healing. And look at what Jesus does and look at how he responds to those accusers. Look at Luke 13, 15 to 17. But the Lord replied, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? And here is the really interesting part this shamed his enemies but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did jesus's healing was so obviously right so righteous so full of the love of the father so full of the power of the holy spirit so obviously good that anyone speaking against that act was shamed in that moment how dare they say something so negative about something that is so obviously godly and good and full of the Holy Spirit. And so what do we do with our wounders? I think it's an okay strategy and a good one for us to pray, God, may you make me so holy, so righteous, so filled with your Holy Spirit, so obviously plugged into you that I do good deeds so that my accusers are shamed. Lord, shame my accusers through my good deeds. Make me so obedient to you. Make me so full of your Holy Spirit that my accusers and my enemies are shamed. Lord, shame my enemies through your good work in me. Lest you think I'm just only using one example. Look at what Paul says to Titus on the island of Crete as Paul's giving him instructions on how to lead these churches. And you yourself must be a good example to them by doing good works of every kind Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. If you're dealing with a wounder in your life right now, Lord, make me so obedient to you and so holy and full of your Holy Spirit that my enemies are shamed. Shame my enemies through your work in me, Lord. I think that's an okay prayer. Because I see it in Scripture the peace that the Prince of Peace brings is so total that it extends to creation it extends to our interpersonal relationships and it even extends to our own hearts we fell when we sinned and when we sinned we set our hearts against the Lord we wanted death we chose death over life and once we chose death that was all we wanted We could not choose life again. We died. A dead person cannot choose life. So we were dead without hope. And that's all our hearts craved was death once we chose it. And it permeates our entire being. We talk about total depravity. Doesn't mean that everyone's as bad as they could be, but it means that every part of us is corrupted. Total depravity means that there's no part of us that sin doesn't touch. It's affected us and brought its death into every area. Of our lives and who we are and our bodies. So our hearts are set against the Lord. Look at what Romans 5 1 says, though. Look at what the Prince of Peace does for our hearts. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. Through Jesus, we have peace with God. Our hearts are enlivened by His Holy Spirit. And now, because of his salvation, we actually can choose life. We actually can walk in righteousness because we have peace with God. Our hearts have been made right. There's this meme I came across this week. And just whatever objections you have, just, it's supposed to be funny. Okay, so let's just, let's just be funny about it, all right? So frame number one is, it says, evangelies evangelizing. So this is making fun of sort of this christianity light kind of basic, you know, I guess you could call it a salvation message that we often encounter in our culture. So the one woman says to the other, you're a beautiful creature and Jesus wants you to let him save you, you know, which is funny, that language, let him save you, you know, as if it's like you have any choice in this matter. Anyway, and then, and then the woman says, I'm beautiful, like really confused, like what is this message even mean? You know what I mean? It's so light, it's like what does it even mean? Anyway, that's the first frame. So then the next frame, it's a reformed theology meme. So the next frame says, reformed boys preaching the gospel, okay, so this is like making fun of reformed theology and how we, we, you know, we often preach the gospel, but it's true, so the the evangelist says, your soul is an appalling dump heap overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable, mangled up, entangled up knots, and the person realizes their sin and says, yes, you're right, you know, and so, but I like this meme because we don't often reckon, reckon with that, right, we often don't think, you know, I'm, I'm really not so bad. And it's like, no, without Christ, your soul is an appalling dump heap. Without Christ, my soul is an appalling dump heap. My soul is permeated with death without Jesus. My soul longs for death. My soul craves death. My soul spreads death. I am a vessel of perpetual sin without Christ. That's why I like this meme. It's like, yeah, without Christ, my soul is deplorable but it's through the sacrifice of Jesus that we have peace with God that's how total the peace that the prince of peace brings is that it extends even to our own hearts it's so total it covers creation covers our interpersonal relationships and extends all the way to our own hearts it's unique because his peace is total and his peace is eternal the christmas truce was so excuse me was so unique Because that's not the norm, this is a war. This is what we do on our planet, we fight. And we want more of the other side to die than our side to die. And then the soldiers get out and they start sharing time together, soccer, exchanging Christmas gifts, singing together. It's like this is not the norm, that's why it was so unique. Because these guys are supposed to be killing one another. And they were, several hours ago. And they will be again, several hours in the future. It's not the norm. The norm is violence. And actually, there's reports that officers scolded their soldiers after they came out to meet with the enemy like that. Like, you shouldn't be fraternizing with the enemy like that. So there was actually penalties handed down because of the Christmas truce because that's not the norm. Violence is the norm. It's been going on since Cain killed Abel. There's an author who I listened to an interview with recently, and I probably would disagree with her on like 95% of things. But I agreed with her on this one thing, it was very fascinating. She was pointing to research that another scholar had done that's called the 10 Stages of Genocide. And what this scholar was pointing at was, you don't just launch a genocide, because people wouldn't stand for that. What you have to do is you have to soften a populace to the idea of genocide and it's over the course of time that you soften people to the idea of genocide that then you can eventually carry it out. And these 10 steps are that process of softening a populace to genocide. And this author was talking about that. You got step one, which is classification, where you set up an us versus them dichotomy. You divide people by us versus them. Step two is symbolization, where you force People to identify themselves, like this was the gold star on the Jews in World War II. You force the unwanted to identify themselves through some type of symbol. Number three is discrimination. That's pretty self-explanatory. Number four is dehumanization. People are equated with animals, Or diseases. Number five is organization, where the military and police enforce discrimination. For instance, right now we have law enforcement in China locking people who have COVID in their homes. That's organization. Number six is polarization. Governments put out propaganda to turn the populace against the targeted group. For instance, in the Soviet Union, kids were encouraged by the government to turn in their parents listen in and squeal on their parents if they heard them saying something that was anti-government. Seven, preparation is relocating relocating people. This is the concentration camps in World War II. Eight is persecution where murders and theft of property, arrests and trials begin. Number nine is extermination where you begin the wholesale getting rid of this unwanted group. And then number 10 finally is denial where the government denies that it's done anything wrong. And the scary part is this author, Naomi Wolf, asserts that we see these ten stages all happening in the United States today. And sometime, if you want to, for fun, I would love to sit down and we can find examples together, but I'm not going to do it right now. But I bring this up to say, this is the steps. This is what the world knows. This has been going on forever. Been going on since Cain killed Abel. It's the norm. Violence is the norm. It's the repeated pattern in this world. But look at Isaiah 9, verse 7, and look at all this eternal language that he's giving us about the peace that the Prince of Peace brings. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for how long? You say it. All eternity. Right now we might have peace for a day in the Christmas truce, but then we're right back to violence. Or we might regret things that happened in World War II, but here we are again, and the ten steps of genocide are going on again. But the Prince of Peace will come and bring his peace forever. That's how unique his peace is. The peace that the Prince of Peace brings is total, it's eternal, and lastly, it's paradoxical. And you're going, okay, there Bill goes with his big words again. What does that mean? Uh, Don't worry about the word. Think about this. The Prince of Peace brings peace in the most counterintuitive of ways because he ends the violence by giving himself over to the violence. He ends the violence by submitting to it. He brings peace by submitting himself to the torture and death of a Roman execution device. He ends the violence by submitting to it. Look at Isaiah 53.5. Speaks of this paradox. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Some translations, I think the NKJV says, by his stripes we are healed. That's a paradox. That the lash marks from whips on Jesus' back are the wounds that bring peace. That the nail holes in his hands. Bring an eternal peace. That the sword. The spear wound in his side. Brings us peace. That the crown of thorns on his head. Brings us peace. That the cross. A torture device. That we wear on our necks. And in our ears. Brings us peace. That an open tomb. A bed of death brings us peace. This is the paradoxical, counterintuitive peace that the Prince of Peace brings us. One more image. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They call it the triumphal entry, knowing that in a few days, he's going to die in this very city. And that riding into the city was a show of a conquering king. This is what kings would do when they return from battle. They would ride into the city triumphantly. There would be a parade and yay, let's celebrate the military victories that this king has accomplished and the battles that this king has won as he rides triumphantly back into the city. And the king would normally ride his horse, his mighty steed, his vehicle of battle. And it would be a visual cue that yes, our king is mighty in war. Our king has won military victories. But Jesus, the conquering king, rides not on a horse. He rides in on a donkey. A humble, non-war animal to signal this is a different type of king who wins different types of battles in counterintuitive ways, namely by giving himself over to the violence of the cross look at Zechariah 9 9 rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey our Prince of Peace is humble riding in the peace that the Prince of Peace brings is unique why because it's total it's eternal and it's paradoxical. I'll end with this. Earlier, we said that Jesus shamed his enemies by healing on the Sabbath. He shamed his enemies then, and he even shamed the enemy of death by giving himself over to it. Look at what Colossians two fourteen to 15 says. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross in this way He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Thank you, Prince of Peace, for shaming the enemy of death by giving yourself over to it.